scary words from Scripture. Sometimes we read words and we would like to have a short, compact conversation with God, probably beginning with something like, really? Really? You really expect this kind of living from your people? Remember, Lord, we're humans. We have fallen from grace. Sinning is kind of like breathing for us, right? And then unfortunately for us, when we ask the question and pause, God answers. And God says, no. And we go, you're kidding. And he said, we've already talked about that. And we say, yes, but sinning is what we all do. We're all human. And he says, very gently, very quietly, as he looks into your eyes, you were not made for such a low estate. You are my children. And you've been called to a higher plane of living for which you are gifted and blessed to be able to live into. Rachel, not Rachel. <laughs> I do that all the time. There's something about my granddaughter, Michael Lou, and my second daughter, Rachel, that blends together in my mind. And it could be a, a real identification with their father and grandfather, Doug. It could be that within their little powerhouses of personality, there is a battle that will go on and will go on for a long time because they are strong-willed, because they are stubborn, because they like things their way. So when Sarah says, Michael Lou, you're going to the nursery, no! Yes, you're going to the nursery because you know how you get when you're in church too long. You're going to the nursery. No, you heard her, right? It wasn't just a no, it was a wailing no. But then she looks at her mother and she's thinking, she's so much bigger, it's not fair. Why does she want me to do? She should want me to stay in church. She should listen to me because I will sit there perfectly all day long. And her mother's thinking, this child will not be perfect all day long. And she should go with me to the nursery and she should be there because we'll both be better people. This kind of made me laugh when I heard her crying. I've Not the first time I've heard that yell before, and it won't be the last. At least not as long as Chad and Sarah are trying to do for her what needs to happen. The only difference between her and her grandfather probably was that I was born in a different culture with a different type of dad, and I would have never finished the first no. It would not have happened. It would not have happened. But we live in a different age, so we do things differently. And there's probably some of that that's good. And some of it that older we are, the more we wonder about it. But let's be clear. That is the story of us all. The difference I was making for the children is a biblical difference. It is, in my estimation, 
one of the geniuses of United Methodism and the theology of John Wesley, that he explained what salvation entails, not just as its beginning or at its end, but in the middle as well. It is the only thing that helps me personally make sense out of all of Scripture, not just parts of it. For the very first, when God called his people, he called them to be holy. They were to be a witness to the nations, and he set them apart to be his people. He separated them, if you will, from the rest of the peoples of the world. And from the beginning, when he did that, it was for the purpose of forming a people for himself so that he might be disclosed to all the peoples around the world in a continual, constant kind of way. Now, when we hear the word holy in our culture, there's a kind of rejection of it. When we talk about being holy people, there's a kind of a, a rant against Christians who feel like that they are more righteous or holier than thou. And then sometimes that rant is appropriate. Well, let me be clear. The difference between holiness and judgmentalism is as different as night and day. The, the holiness and the righteousness revealed in Scripture is not an arrogant thing. It is not a boastful thing. It is not a judgmental thing. It is rather, at its most clear and pure essence, perfect love for God and for others. Once we begin to grasp a hold of that concept, then we still read these troubling passages like we just read in Paul where he's in the midst of the struggle in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 that encompasses the human experience. Now, at least from the perspective that I have read and studied it. Now, granted, there are books, literally books. There are short libraries written on the, those chapters in Romans. And it's very argumentative about exactly what Paul was meaning and exactly what he was trying to say when he was saying that in chapter 6. But if you think that's the only place it's said in Scripture, let me take you for a short journey. And if you think the words of Paul were tough to hear, listen to these words from the John, the apostle, as he wrote in 1 John chapter 3. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. He didn't appear just so that we might go to heaven. He appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one abides in him sins. No one who abides in him sins. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him. Or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, capital He, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. And he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor the one who does not love his brother. Those are words that just cause us to turn to jelly inside, don't they? If we take them seriously. Why? Because we know that though we know God and we've been saved by God, there is still a conflict often going on in our minds and in our hearts that is a war with God. And because at times we are still sinning and we know we're still sinning and we are doing it like the little boy said, do not remove. And the first thing we feel like when we're a little boy of his nature, God bless him, is when we see something that says do not remove, what do we want to do? I'm going to remove it. So when God says don't do this, we go, really? I'm going to do it. And he says, I know, but that doesn't make it right. And you can be healed from that. Now, here's the part. You need to listen to what I'm saying. This will not be a full explanation of entire sanctification because you can't do that in a sermon that lasts any reasonable amount of time. But you need to listen closely so that you do not mishear me nor cause yourself undue trauma for the rest of the day or the rest of the week. Because I'm not here to cause you to have a traumatic experience unless it is of the secondary nature kind that is our time of trauma when we walk away from willful sinning. Unless it's that traumatic time that we identify and is known in some uh, theological search circles as when we give Christ lordship of our life. Because you see, salvation is really more than just being pardoned for our sins and coming into relationship with God. It's about a process that begins at that moment when we are pardoned, that we are also in the blink of an eye experiencing the new birth. We become a new person in Christ. But that begins a process of sanctification that Wesley called in, um, initial sanctification that is not completed until we are glorified in heaven. And yet, there is the experience of entire sanctification along the way that is normally for most people happening after they've experienced salvation and years later when they begin to mature, they kind of begin to go, oh, I've been a Christian all these years, but I haven't been a great one. In fact, I've been a very willful sinner at times. When I've used my money, when I've made my plans, when I've said no to serving God, when I've said no to being a witness for Christ, when I've refused to be all that I can be, when I've refused to allow the Holy Spirit to purge me of the lust of my flesh and to cause me to give myself entirely to God, exerting my willful ways when I knew they were wrong. That is the moment of confrontation when we call the, that we call in the Methodist circles the fullness of the Spirit that normally comes to people not when they're first saved, although there are witnesses and persons who can tell you that when they turned on to Jesus, they turned on fully. Normally that is in adults, not normally in children or youth who are learning about Christ through a process. It's normally about people who have radical conversions, conversions when they have a lordship at the same time that they experience their salvation. But it's much, much more. There's a whole kind of process that has to go on. I can't think about God now at this age that's like I could when I was 27 because I was 27. And at 27, you already have all the answers. It's just a matter of the Lord understanding you have them. 
And you know, you cannot explain sometimes the arrogance of faith because you're so arrogant, you smell. And that's what people who are not in the church smell sometimes in Christians. We talk about being fully Christ and the Lordship of our Christ, and they go, I work with you, dude. I've seen you. I've heard you. If that's the Lordship of Christ, I don't want any part of that. And we go, oh, well, well that's just a sinner of a, you know, I'm a saved Christian. And I, I, that's the, I mean, I'm, I'm allowed to get mad. I'm mad. I'm, 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 we don't like being called out when we're sinning and when we're giving a witness to others that we're a Christian. But you know, there is a point in life where we become, can become so righteous that our affections are affected. Even our very way that we think is affected. This is how you identify mature Christians. This is how you identify people who are changing the world. We're trying to identify ourselves as people who are loving and forgiving. As people who are intentional. A great word in Western theology. And teachable. We're trying to identify ourselves as people who have hope and who are confident. As people who are whole. Body, mind, soul, and spirit. Emotions, thinking, feeling commitment to Christ and people as people who are holy set apart for the purposes of God and controlled by the very spirit of God who has been given free reign in our lives now very few people Wesley believe actually reach that stage until right before death and most people believe that most Christians live a very carnal life with their eyes set on going to heaven not realizing the heaven that they're missing on earth. And because there's the kingdom of God suffers. Because we have fallen for the deceit of the evil one that tells us that because we're human, we will sin. And there's some truth to that, as there often is in the words from the evil one. There's some truth to the extent that because we are human and we are fallen creatures, it is true that there is a sin we cannot overcome. I explained it to the children. Did you get that? There's some mistakes that we're not getting away from. We are humans. We do err. Even with their best intentions, we make mistakes. We misunderstand. I can remember when as a young pastor, I was so full of what I had as theological knowledge talked to over the whole long study of the, the previous 24 months that I was so wise that I became quite convinced that women should not be in ministry. And that was a problem for you if you were going to the Methodist seminary and intended to be a United Methodist pastor. And I knew that because as a local pastor, I went to, to churches and I realized that everybody came up for vote. And everybody voted on them being accepted. All the clergy voted on the incoming clergy. And if I didn't believe that a woman could be really ordained to be a clergy person, then I would have to vote no. And I also realized I'd be the only one voting no in the congregation. And I thought, that might be a problem for me. And I said, Lord, I think we have a problem. And the Lord said quietly, so quietly that I couldn't hear or wouldn't hear, 
No, Doug, it's not we that have a problem. It's you that have a problem. But I didn't hear that part. But when I got to seminary to a holy place like Asbury, where I was safe, my soul was not under attack, at least from my perspective. They had a little class offered at night, women in the ministry. And I thought, I better go to that. It sounds to me like that's necessary. I did. I went to it, but I'd already had the unsettling experience of meeting many women whose call to ministry sounded just like my own story, except their gender was different. I didn't know quite what to do with that, because I thought I already knew what the Scripture said about that, but I was wrong. And after a biblical study of that, and after going through a process of really understanding the Scriptures at a whole different level, then I began to understand both why people say women can't be in ministry and the much broader, I think, clearer biblical injunction that women were already in ministry from the time they were following Paul around in the Scriptures. And so I became at peace with my ignorance of the past. You know, ignorance is ignorance. And when it's not by something we have tried to have, it's still there. We don't have perfect knowledge nor perfect understanding. And quite frankly, some people are much better theologians than others. That's why all theology books are not created equal, nor are all theologies created equal. Understandings of God are developed out of inspired human minds, but they're not all equally inspired. You ever heard somebody tell you what they felt like was pure wisdom, and you were going, oh, my word. The garbage that this person thinks is wisdom is scary. And some of you are thinking right now, and you're the one that thinks people can be holy. That's pretty scary, too. But it's also very biblical. So obviously, I'm not talking about sin that is without fault, but rather sin that is without blame. That's two different kinds of sin. When you do sin that is out of ignorance or because you're human or because of the impulse of a moment before you think, that's a mistake. That is sin for which you will not be blamed for. But when you willfully, knowingly transgress a known law of God, that is a sin that is intentional. And it is a rejection of Christ. And it is not part of the life of the righteous brothers and sisters who are mature in their faith in Christ. You probably remember most clearly, not what you did when you were three or four or five or two, you probably remember most clearly when you came into that direct conflict in your life as a teenager. You knew what your parents had taught you as being the truth about life. And you come to that moment when you have to decide, do I trust my parents or do I trust myself or my friends? Remember how that turned out? Maybe not the first time, but you remember how it turned out over the next 60 decisions you made as a teenager? Probably, what's the score? For some, the score is 10 and 50. For some, the score is 
30-30. For some, the score is 60-0. and zero. They always did what they were taught. For whatever reason, they just did. All I'm suggesting to you this morning in this message is that we are called to not only be whole in our bodies and in our minds and in our emotions or in our spirit, but we are also called to be holy, set apart, showing and living the character of God in our lives, not only by the things we think and know, but by the things we do. If we are to follow Christ with the heart of passion that he's given us to have. Now, you say, but you know how hard that is, preacher? Um, if you'd lived in my body, you'd know the answer to that question. Yes, I know how hard it is to be a person of the Spirit consistently, day by day, even when it's hard and even when it seemingly hurts someone else, even when it sets you apart from others in a way that you don't want to be set apart. Yes, I understand that. I understand that there's a negative part of being holy that is not sinning, and that there's a positive part of being holy that's called pure love. I understand that they're both important. I understand that we're all sinners because we're human, but I also understand that when we have been experienced the new birth and been given the, the access to the Holy Spirit, and that as we relinquish ourselves to more and more of that Spirit, that we become more and more perfect. That that is a journey, it is a purification journey, when the wheels of life grind and grind on our soul and our lives and the ashes fall to the side of that which is not of Christ. I experienced it in my giving. I've experienced it in my lifestyle. I've experienced it in my emotions. And not any of it was easy. I didn't think that God needed my money nearly as much as I did. And I thought if I just give him a certain part of it that he'd be all right with that. The trouble is as I get older and older, the more I begin to realize that all of it is already his. And if I'm using more of it than I need for myself, instead of more of it that others need worse than I do, I'm thwarting the purposes of God. And that is not holy living. When Jesus said love everybody, I thought he was just kidding. Or at least allow me to pick the ones that that applied to. As a pastor of a number of churches, there's always some people that I just look at. And my first impulse is to think, you're in the wrong place. Obviously, you're in the wrong place. Because you are so difficult to love. And you're making it very difficult on me to love. You. And then I'm turning to God to say, don't you agree, God? And every time I turn to God to see, God is kind of turning around and looking the other way. And I'm going, oh, yeah. If you love your, only those who love you, you're no different than your enemies. Love your enemies. Love those who persecute you. Love those who aren't lovable. And I, all the time, aren't you going, really? Are you serious? You know how hard that is, God? And God says, Yeah. I've known how hard it was since I created you miserly creatures. I've been loving you day in and day out, watching you, just wanting to throw up a lot of times. But I still love you. And by the way, when you want to walk off from that option for yourself, you are walking off from me and the life I've called you to live. 
Gandhi had it right. He would be glad to be a Christian if some of us would just live like Jesus so he could believe it. It is the same for us. We're too quick to let ourselves off the hook. We're too quick to set discipline aside as belonging to the teenagers and not to the adults. We're too quick to make adult decisions that affect our children and our youth. We're too quick as adults to give ourselves a break and just chalk it off as sin and say, oh, well, I'll be forgiven of it all in all anyway in the end. Yes, you're going to be forgiven. If all you want to be is a Christian in heaven someday, then just be content in your ignorance. But don't be content in what the scriptures say in your ignorance. Don't blame God for creation because you're human, because you won't follow the rules. Because God is not the one to blame. He gave you a will and a strength that is beyond this world to say no and to make good choices if we will. Let's just take an extreme example. Let's take last time at this very time while I was preaching about the safety and not being afraid in the church that a man was in a church destroying life. What were your thoughts? Were they under the control of Christ? Were you weeping for that man's insanity as Christ was weeping for him? Or were you wanting to strike him down with your raised fist in order that he might hurt no one else? Is there a time to protect innocence? Certainly there is. But when we're detached and far away and we can't do anything about the immediacy of that event, what matters is what we think about that man's soul. What matters is where our affections go when we call ourselves Christians. Because we are people who have called to be like Jesus. We are to have hope for the hopeless. We are to be confident that the power of God's grace is stronger than the power of temptation or the evil one in our world. We are called to live as sinlessly as possible and to make the effort that that's required to do. I've tried to think about what I'd be settled for for myself if I thought about my Christian ethic. I remember when my nephews introduced me to the game of, I've forgotten the game, but it was not a good game for me to play. I, I knew it the first time I sat down and I watched the boys play it, and they said, here, you try. And it was this game uh, when video games were still pretty crude in the beginning, but you, you were a soldier, and, you know, you were walking around in the, in the Russian camp, and you were shooting the bad guys. Now, I've always liked stories of heroes in the West and in the Army and everywhere else. I always like the bad guy to get their due, at least in my mind, if not theologically. In that game, I forgot that, who knows that game? Some of you are out. Yeah, what was it? Wolfenstein, that was the game. Bad idea to give me a computer game. I don't play them at home for a very good reason. Because once I start playing the game, I know who's going to win. It is only a matter of time, right? And when I stuck it out until I got the last Russian, I don't want to tell you how many hours and days and weeks that took. But I was committed to learning the game. 
committed to so many things. I would almost sell out for that level of commitment to Christ. If we could just be as committed to becoming all that we could be. Not faultless, but blameless. Blameless because we are, have a surrendered the control of our lives, our thoughts, and our actions to the Holy Spirit. Because we submitted our personalities to be altered by the Holy Spirit to make us into the image of Christ. We don't use our personalities as an excuse not to be transformed, but as a reason that we need to be transformed. We don't just sit where we are on our way to heaven, but we become more loving, caring human beings while we walk this earth so that others may know just how much Christ loves them. This work of grace begins as both a relative change in our relationship to God and as a real change in our hearts with a new birth. And that real change is a present, continuous action, Greek expression of a work that is never over and ever ongoing. I am not as good now as I intend to be before I leave this earth. I intend to get better every day that I can. Now, some days I'm a fallen person to my shame. And I have to go back and confess it to my Lord that I've been willfully disobeying. And I'm going to cry. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to make a correction. And I work at it. But it's not easy, is it? Sometimes it just feels easier just to say, well, after all, I'm just a child saved by grace. And I'm enjoying my sinning ways. And don't bother me with my sins, please. I'd like to live in a lap of ignorance. Incompleteness ineffectiveness I'd like to live being confused rather than trying to face that part of me that I really don't want to face we're, we're that way oftentimes but we don't have to be you say well okay how do we get out of that mess the same way you got into the mess of understanding that you're in a mess it's a work of grace you can't earn sanctification any more than you can earn justification. But by the same token, you have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in your life so that the sanctifying grace can take greater and greater control of you. That part is your part. God is not going to do that for you or in you until you surrender yourself to him. That's why the holiness people understand that the second work of grace is coming to the altar in order to pray through their will. So that they might turn their will over to Christ as a beginning point of a real sanctifying process that will have its completion later on as the process unfolds. But if it never begins, you're never really in the battle. If you just accept the weak person that you are, you will continue to be the weak person that you are. And all God's grace can't help you because you will not submit yourself to his authority and to the power of his word. And you're afraid to submit yourself to the power of his word because it requires you to study it. It requires you to listen to others talk about it. If you're like a lot of us, it requires you to go somebody smarter than you because it's hard to understand. And you need somebody to lead you step by step. You need to be discipled. You need to be in a sit-down group. You need to be in a small group. And once you're in a sit-down small group, 
where you have grappled with a decision to move forward in your faith, then you'll be ready to go out and to serve. And you'll be a better servant than you were before you sat down and studied the scriptures. You can't get there by accident. And you can't get there by osmosis. And God will not force it on you. Gracious God that he is. He has given you a free will. He is just yearning for you to exercise it. Wow, we could stay here a long time today. But you're already confused enough probably. You're probably already going, man, it's last week was more fun. You know, uh, this week is just kind of like this long parental talk. Yeah, that's kind of what it is. It's kind of that way because, you know, self-discipline is not always our greatest strength. We Americans are kind of proud of the fact that we just get to have it all most of the time. You know, we don't have to discipline ourselves nearly so much. And if you're like that kind of person, you know, when life comes along and disciplines you, you don't really like it. Yesterday, am I through? I'm supposed to be already through, but I'm going to retire for many more years anyway. Why not, you know, wait it out, right? We went, Sally and I went to a MG conference, a whole group of people gathering to talk about myasthenia gravis, something that most doctors know little about, surprising though it is. And if you really want to know more about it, you go to where others have been living with it for several years and you learn a lot. But they kept saying things that just go against everything that I like, like words like, well, you just have to take charge of your life. You just have to rest more. You just have to do less. And when you're tired, you have to go home and go to bed. Because if you don't, you can call it a crisis in your life. You say, why are you telling us that? Well, so you'll feel sorry for me. Uh, no. Because that's the way life is really, isn't it? If we don't take charge of ourselves and get things in order, don't we have crisis? And we deal with this disease, too. And I'm like, but, but, but I'm not ready to retire. I'm ready to keep working, and I'm ready to, you know. And they say, doesn't matter what you like. Doesn't matter what you want. And so many words, they just keep telling you over and over, if you don't take care of it, it will take care of you. How would you like to be plugged up for two months onto a ventilator? Not too fond of that picture. Not something I want. Then when you get tired, go home. People will understand, or they won't. kind of freeing all of a sudden you know so yesterday I stayed home yesterday afternoon and after today's sermon is over I'm supposed to go to charge conference and y'all should go I won't I won't go because my medicine stopped working as effectively on the 25th for those of you who are counting and I was that's the 25th day of my last treatment and that was Wednesday and since then my energy is sapping away. My eyesight is worse. It's all coming back. And now I know I don't need the shots every month. I need, this, I need the medicine every three weeks. So I'll go back to my doctor who will go back to my insurance company and try to get them to understand that. I, I found people who needed it every two weeks in order to keep functioning. But even when you do, some days are better than others. So if you catch me on a bad day and I say, well, this has been fun, but I'm going home, just know that your opinion doesn't really matter then. I'm going home because the alternative seems bad to me because it's a good lesson for me in other areas of my life. 
Life has a way of getting our attention. Just think of the difference, though, when we decide to give it. Now, I was as strange as it sounds. For the most part, I did most of my sinning inside. Never told anybody about it. Why? My daddy was six foot two and 220 pounds, and I was not. And my daddy was very clear about life and very clear about how to help me be clear about life. And I just was an obedient kid up until I got in junior high, early high school, and they began to let me on my own. They said, don't ever get on a motorcycle. My daddy was terrified of motorcycles, had a cousin that banged up his whole body on a motorcycle and couldn't, it just ruined his life in a lot of ways. So I knew I wasn't supposed to get on a motorcycle. But the trouble was Rodney Spain had one. And I thought, I wonder if Daddy will know if I get on the back of the motorcycle. Knowing that if I got on the back of the motorcycle, I was probably going to tell Daddy anyway because I figured some other woman would in that little town of 2000. They would see me riding down the street on a motorcycle and they'd probably know I wasn't supposed to be doing it. That's the way little old ladies are in little bitty towns, right? But I decided to get on the back of that motorcycle. It was a crisis, and we needed to go somewhere, and that was the only way was on the back of that scooter, so I did. And then I learned what happens next when you break the rules and you know you broke them. I never told Daddy because now I was old enough to think I could hide it. Kind of like we do God. We think God can't see. God doesn't know. We think we can hide it. We think we can be churchy rather than spiritual. But when we decide to really follow, it's like really deciding to love someone. It's an intentional process that you take and you do, and you follow it out as long as you're intentional. It's the same way with God. But it's not automatic. I've said that already gardener several times and you said yeah you have aren't you are you kind of repeating yourself yeah I am why well you just never know what somebody's going to hear it the first time or the sixth time you just never know you never know when somebody's going to decide okay God I'm tired of the battle I'm just going to give myself to you when you say it I'm just going to do it as best I understand and that's about as good as it gets because then you're receptive. Right now, my disease blocks my nerve impulses to my muscles. It closes up a percentage of my receptors. That means my eyes don't move as fast. Sometimes my speech doesn't move as fast. Sometimes I can't raise my arms all the way because some of the, the, so many receptors are blocked off. And that's just the way it is. You see, when you block the receptors from your brain or from God to your muscles or to your life, everything slows down and nothing works right. What do you want to be? The person who takes that step and says, I'm not wanting to go to heaven. I'm wanting all of Jesus, all of the time, right now.
Here's my life, Lord. Use it. Do with it what you want. I will follow you. When we get to that point, we have entered that moment of sanctifying grace. We call it a crisis event in our salvation experience. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect on the next day, but it means you will be intentional about being teachable, about greater knowledge. It will give you greater hope for yourself and for the world and greater confidence that the God you're walking with hand in hand is ever ready to forgive you for all the mistakes and even on those bad days when you intentionally decide to walk away. That's holiness. That's the holy life that we've been called to. The only question left is will we respond? Lord God, we thank you for your grace. We know that we can do nothing in this world apart from your grace. We cannot work hard enough or long enough without your grace to do it on our own. But if we will open up ourselves and give ourselves to the task of becoming more like you, your grace will empower us, make us stronger than the enemy, and guide us into a deeper and deeper relationship of love with you, with ourselves, and with all those around us. If only, Lord, if only we are willing to take that next step. You may be here this morning, and you may... You may not be a Christian at all. You may never have decided to let God pardon your sins. You may not ever have decided to want to follow where Jesus has walked. You can do it today. You can make that decision for yourself. If you're there today, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to come forward as we stand and sing and let us know so that we as a church can celebrate with you your new walk in Christ. You may be here today. And you're trying to make this walk on your own, without a church family, without a community of faith, without the support you need in order to cause all these things to happen, with nobody to sit down with, nobody to go out with and serve, no way to express what it means to follow Jesus on your own. You can do it in this community. We would love to have you a part of our church family. Just come down and tell us you want to be a part of it. You may be here today, this morning, and all you need is a little time at the chest oil to reprioritize your life, to make clear that your channels are open, that you are receptive to the grace of God, continuing the work of salvation that began in you a long, long time ago. Whatever is your need, I invite you to come as we stand and sing.